Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Bolden here. I am so glad to have you here listening to episode 460 of the Speaker Lab podcast for a uh, conversation with my good friend, Ryan Campbell. Now, Ryan is a fellow speaker and aviation enthusiast, just like me. And uh, as a young boy growing up, he became obsessed with flying. And at 19, he actually became the youngest pilot to fly a single engine plane the entire way around the globe. Crazy, right? He wanted to be named uh, one of Australia's 50 youngest explorers, which uh, may give you a little hint. He's got a great Australian accent. It's going to hook you in. Following these experiences, Ryan's life took an unexpected drop and he hit a season of extreme turbulence. See what we did there? While uh, recovering, Ryan was trying to find his bigger purpose in life and, and what was in store for him. He was looking for a way to connect the highs and lows of his life, and he set his eyes on a speaking career. Ryan moved to the U.S. on a work visa to become a professional speaker, and shortly after settling down south, he became the proud owner of a pink Cadillac. Now, the pink Cadillac quickly became a, a real key piece of Ryan's brand and his story. Now, you may be listening and thinking, okay, Grant, I don't, I don't own a pink Cadillac. I don't have any wild experiences like that, but what about me? Well, Ryan and I can definitely agree that being a successful speaker is less about the stories that you hold and more about the ways that you can present old truths in fun, unique, and unforgettable ways. So no matter what your story is Ryan and I are going to dig into what it looks like for you to go through the process of recreating truths and telling memorable stories for a modern audience. So thanks for tuning in. Here's our conversation with Ryan Campbell. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Bolden here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab Podcast. Good to have you here with us today. Hey, I'm excited for this conversation because we're going to be uh, chatting with my buddy, Ryan Gamble. Um, and uh, he and I geek out on speaking. We also geek out on flying, a new hobby of mine. He's been a uh, a, a, a great friend in this and also a big uh, source of peer pressure. Um, this guy really has some serious aviation experience, which we'll touch on a little bit today. But uh, his speaking journey has also been uh, really fascinating. So, uh, Ryan, thanks for joining us today. It is great to be here. Now you, uh, you've also mentioned to me, like you've listened to the show for a minute. Is that fair? Yeah, this is weird. Um, it is. Weird. Yeah. It's been, I mean, I'm like any kind of speaker out there in the game, always looking for, you know, new insights and it's a lonely game. So I think, you know, we turn to podcasts. It's such a wealth of knowledge and, and kind of just, I don't know, fruit out there. So I have, yeah. I have listened to you for years. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good to have you here uh, on this side of the microphone now. So uh, first of all, for some context, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, who you speak to, what do you speak about, and then uh, we'll kind of jump in and dig in from there. Yeah, 100%. So uh, we speak on prioritizing joy. Specifically, we talk about mental health, we talk about resilience, but we really dial down into the importance of our hobbies, our interests, and our simple pleasures in life. Uh, we call them pink Cadillacs for good reason. So uh, it's a mental health conversation. It talks about this idea of stepping back in order, uh, in order to show up better. 
in life and, and getting that rest and recharge that we all need, which for you, I know is flying. So uh, we share a pink Cadillac right there, but that's what we talk about. Uh, we do a lot of healthcare with a bit of you know, a backstory in that industry. Uh, but honestly, as much as I know we are told not to say this, we have a pretty broad, wide uh, range of clients. And I think that comes down to how important this concept of, of understanding adversity, accepting the role of resilience, and then just having joy in our lives. It's, a, it's, a, it's something every single one of us needs. Now, uh, I'm going to take a quick uh, detour right out of the gate here. Um, uh, as people may have noticed here, you do not have an American Southern accent here. You live here in the, in the national yeah. area. Uh, do, you, do you feel like the Australian accent helps you to book gigs? Australian? I'm not Australian. I'm from West Texas, Grant. <laughs> um, that's what we tell everyone. But yeah, I don't know. I, th I think maybe the laid back likability factor. I think the more I get into this game, the more I realize that that is a massive part of being a successful speaker is being easy to work with and, and likable and kind of stress-free. And, and that's kind of everything that most Australians are. So I think that helps. And I think the West Texas joke always lands well. That always warms yeah. it around. So um, yeah, I, I think it does help a little bit. All right. All right. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, our friends with a British accent, they always sound 10% smarter than the rest of us. And so you, you play into your accent. So, you know, anybody who's kind of like, ah, I have this Southern accent or this foreign accent is like, no, no, like lean into that. Like that's part of what makes you unique and distinct. So, uh, all right, let's go back a little bit because you, again, like I touched on there, you have a, a crazy story um, that I've, I've been able to hear about just firsthand you and I talking about it, but give us a little bit of a background of kind of a, this key story, kind of stories that, has really had a big impact in your life and part of what led to you getting into speaking. Yeah, for sure. So there's definitely two main chapters to my life and they both happened before the age of 22. So when I was very young and they both involved aviation and one was ultimately amazing and one was uh, obviously terrible. Uh, but when I was a young kid, uh, I discovered aviation, fell in love with it. It was my passion. It was everything that I wanted to do and, and be an experience. And as I grew up, that never went away. And I was a 14-year-old kid, wanted to learn to fly an aeroplane, realized that it cost a lot of money. So I went and found an after-school job and a weekend job and, and funded my flying lessons. Flew solo on the day that I turned 15 and then just kind of my whole life just revolved around anything that flew. And what that led to was this ridiculous want as a normal Aussie kid you know, dad was a truck driver, a farmer, mum was a stay-at-home mum. This kind of idea to want to be the youngest person who've ever flown a single-engine airplane solo around the world uh, seemed like okay, a good idea. Okay, hang on. Let's just stop right there because, like, that's, an, that's a sentence that's easy to just kind of, like, casually, flippantly throw out there. But, like, again, let's let this soak in here. A single-engine plane for it to solo around the world. And a globe doesn't look that big, but in the scope of things, like, it's a long way uh, around the world. And you did this at the age of 19? Yeah. So it was, we started planning at 17. It took two years. Uh, fundraised a quarter of a million dollars on a laptop computer. I really think the planning phase was actually more impressive than the flight itself. But yeah, I mean, we took a single engine airplane, modified it, put 160 gallons of fuel in the cockpit with me. It was a flying fuel tank. And then flew 24,000 nautical miles solo around the world as a teenage kid. and. <laughs> I just, Grant, I don't know why I did it. It was a terrible idea, but it, it, no, it, it changed my life. It was amazing. But I think you get, as you get older, you look back and you're like, whoa, that was a, that was a big deal. 
Well, that was one thing we were talking about recently when we, we hung out, we went flying together and like, it's, it's an incredibly impressive thing, but also like, it's incredibly risky, uh, and, and dangerous. Like we were looking, you know, we were kind of looking at the, the legs that you flew there. And so, you know, we don't have to get the nuts and bolts of, but like, for example, flying from, you know, Hawaii to the mainland, you know, that leg, if I remember correctly, it was like a, you know, 10, 10, 12 hour leg. And 15, 15. 15. And I remember at one point you said like, at one point you're over the Pacific ocean there and you are a thousand miles from land in any yeah. direction. And yeah. just like as a 19 year old, just getting lost in your thoughts of like, what the heck am I doing out here? You know? So yeah. like, it's super sketchy, risky type stuff. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the spirit of adventure, which is what got me into the whole thing. Like falling in love with those pioneering aviators, you know, that we read about when we we're in school and, and, you know, read about in the textbooks and, just their sense of adventure. They want to kind of know what was over that next horizon. They want to push the limits. When we did this, uh, I didn't really realize it at the time, but more people had been to space and flown solo around the world. And this was 10 years ago, this month I departed, which is kind of insane. So yeah, it was rare. It was, it was big and it was adventurous, but it thankfully it was a success. And then it obviously changed my life. Yeah. So you mentioned that was kind of the, the, the high in aviation. Talk to us about the other story. Yeah, so straight out the back of the round the world flight, 19-year-old kid uh, offered to speak. People would call up and say, do you want to come and share your story? And I didn't have a website. I didn't have a reel. I just didn't care. I just rocked up, told my story and left. And and that was kind of spin-off off the back of media and the coverage of the flight. Um, somehow, I was named one of Australia's 50 greatest explorers, which we've laughed about um, at the hangar. And uh, had the opportunity to meet the royals and kind of just live this real unique life. Yeah. And despite all of the good stuff, despite the opportunity in speaking, I actually turned down a lot of speaking and just focused on flying. I didn't care about money. I just wanted to pursue my passion. And that led to a job flying vintage airplanes, uh, specifically a biplane, open cockpit biplane built in the 1930s. And I went to work to fly that airplane two years after the end of the round the world flight. And I climbed into the airplane, had a passenger in the cockpit in front of me. My job was to fly up the beach. And if the passenger wanted to go upside down, we would fly upside down briefly at the end of that kind of adventure flight and land. It was a great job, beautiful airplane, beautiful part of the world. But on this day, we took off a grass airstrip, end of the airstrip disappeared beneath the nose of the airplane and we had an engine failure and we lost power. And despite doing everything that I could, and you are a licensed pilot, you do understand the training that we all go through. And despite doing everything I possibly could in the scenario we found ourselves in, it wasn't enough. And ultimately what resulted was not just a horrific plane crash, but I was actually cut from that wreckage um, and taken to hospital as the only survivor. And it's tough. Like it, uh, We don't deliver a keynote without... Um, a box of tissues and it's it's a tough it's tough it, it really is and uh, I was taken to hospital five breaks in my back shattered facial bones removed right ankle I was the lucky one um, I was placed in the ICU I woke up in a recovery ward five breaks in my back that included a spinal cord injury resulted in a complete paraplegic diagnosis it resulted in almost six months in a hospital full-time in a spinal rehabilitation ward and then it resulted in a year and a half total of rehabilitation and a journey not just as you know back to flying but back to walking so tough you know aviation gave me the very best but it also gave me the very worst experiences of my life 
That's powerful. Um, uh, significant. And, and, um, I know you've, you've mentioned before that it's hard to, uh, stand on stage and share that story without getting emotional. Um, and just the, the impact that that has on you for, you know, the, the rest of life, how do you go from that and, and start to that recovery for those next several months? Um, and, and start to think through, you know, not even about flying, but like, what, what do I do with my life now? And where do I go from here? Like, how does speaking start to enter the picture? Cause it seems like one of those things that like, um, why would I want to go around? I know this has become a big part of your keynote, but like, why would I want to go around telling large groups of strangers about the worst possible day of my life and reliving that like time and time and time again? So walk us through like what that transition has been like. Yeah, I think it took a long while and I was on a journey back to flying. I completely retrained as a commercial helicopter pilot as an incomplete paraplegic. And I was flying the helicopter one day and I landed and I packed the machine up and my life was great. I was, there were lots of things wrong, lots of internal systems don't work, can't feel my feet, the backs of my legs where I sit, no push in my feet. I obviously walk like I've had a few too many Tennessee whiskeys, but I ultimately am very lucky, but I do have long, lifelong disabilities and, and physical uh, ailments, as we should say. So the fact that that was the case and I was a helicopter pilot was amazing. So I was finally kind of paving this new road, writing a new chapter. And I flew the helicopter one day, landed, went home, realized that my foot hurt, which was very odd. I normally couldn't feel my foot, took off my shoe. It was full of blood. Um, I had a rock in my shoe. I'd flown the helicopter all day, not knowing the rock was in my shoe because I couldn't feel my feet. And then ultimately back in the hospital, back in the wheelchair for another two months and and two months of that really was a massive opportunity to reflect and kind of ask that question that you just asked, like, what, what on earth am I doing here? Like, what yeah. am I going to do with my life? And I realized at that point that a lot of speakers are out there like the prior version of, of Ryan who spoke on climbing a mountain, this incredible success that had its adversities along the way. But there was also a whole different group that spoke on the day that changed their life forever. And that was unrequested adversity, but very few had both. And I thought to myself, wait on, that's actually an opportunity to compare the two, to see where do we truly learn. And it was that realization that said, hey, like what you have to share actually kind of far outweighs your unwillingness to want to be a keynote speaker. You should do it. And that's when I packed up my entire life. Uh, I sold everything except a little airplane that got me back into the air after the accident. And I moved to Nashville, Tennessee. And I thought, if I'm going to do this, I'm, I'm going to do it in America. And, and I mean, gosh, that was just the beginning of the journey, really. So moving to the U.S. was in part to pursue the speaking dream? 110%. It was the complete reason. And in fact, I moved here and looked to business just prior to COVID. And uh, the president gave me a visa that says you can speak and only speak. And then Australia said, you're not welcome back in during the pandemic. So I'm locked in America in the state of the industry that kind of existed around the pandemic. And then realizing that my one source of income and keeping bread on the table actually came from speaking. So it was a trial by fire in a way. And I think that actually kind of benefited us and, and helped with the growth uh, because it was just, I mean, we had to do it. We had no choice. You, you've obviously, like you mentioned there, you, you've had um, an incredible, incredible high that most people have never experienced. And you've also had an incredible, incredible low that most people have not experienced. And yet for a certain percentage of speakers, there is some type of 
you know, crazy overcoming obstacles story. And it may not have anything to do with aviation, but they've overcome cancer. They've climbed Mount Everest. They won a, an Olympic gold medal. They've been to space, whatever. So something has happened. Um, how did you kind of navigate? This is one thing we were talking about recently. Like, how did you kind of navigate in determining like, okay, I got a cool story. So what? Like, how do I turn that into something that ultimately um, is in service of the audience and is something that that they don't walk away from going like, well, you know, crazy story, cool story. Wow, that, that guy's had quite the life and walk away and don't do anything different. How did you kind of navigate and determine, OK, I've had these life experiences. So what, what do I do with these as a result? Yeah, I mean, some of that came natural because you actually had to go through it. So I was pretty passionate from day one about mental health. I mean, I was in a spinal rehabilitation ward seeing incomplete paraplegics who basically won the spinal cord injury lottery walk out of that rehabilitation ward with worse mindsets than a quadriplegic who'll never move their body, arms, legs, anything from below their chest for the rest of their life. And that was a window into uh, the world of mental health and, and the importance of winning and, and losing life above your shoulders. And then to be able to pair that with my own experiences of getting back to walking and, and kind of going through the accident and, and all of that, realizing that learning to walk was a mental challenge, not a physical challenge. All of that combined made me very passionate about mental health. And so I think I naturally fell into the resilience mental health uh, box because I really wanted to be able to help people with that. I saw people struggling everywhere I looked, but it was actually being on that journey while still struggling myself, still trying to find my feet at 24, 25 on the other side of the world and a number of events that happened that actually led to what we now do. And specifically, that was the purchase of a 1960, 19-foot-long Elvis-inspired pink Cadillac that happened to happen when I moved to America because I thought that was a good idea and I just wanted to do it because I wanted to do it. It was that pink Cadillac merged with my aviation stories that really kind of led us down the road of prioritizing joy. And, you know, that now... I really believe that you have to get out there and, and deliver the content to see what resonates. And I've been blown away. Uh, if you had told me that the pink Cadillac message that we share would have taken off in the way that it has, I would have laughed at you. Yeah. you know? But it's getting out there and, and having this conversation and, and watching the reactions that make you understand what is and what is not important. Uh, so that's been a wild journey. And we haven't talked much on the pink Cadillac, so I want to I want to come back to that. But um, a couple other questions, just kind of as it relates to the story, because it it, uh, it sounds like on the aviation stories on themselves, like it sounds like you're getting some traction, but it wasn't until the pink Cadillac really entered the picture that things really took off, which you wouldn't necessarily think. You would think like, okay, wow, we have two amazing, powerful uh, aviation stories, which on their own should be enough. Um, were you finding that they weren't resonating, that you weren't figuring out where they fit? Uh, what was that that journey like? It was really good. And there were great platforms to share lessons and thoughts on resilience and some kind of you know framework to say, hey, this is how you need to go out and become what we call turbulence tough. But what I realized with the Pink Cadillac message is my aviation stories created the buy-in and that was getting the audience sitting there in the palm of your hand saying, not why do we have to be here and listen to this, but how do we be what you are? How do we do what you did? Because we have challenges and plane crashes in our own lives. And it was getting to that pink Cadillac message and actually turning the, uh, the narrative from Ryan to the audience member and saying, okay, well, this is my pink Cadillac story. These are my aviation stories. 
what's your pink Cadillac? And it was that moment that we used the word your. It was the moment that we posed a question in the keynote to truly turn that around, to put the lights on the audience, to get people standing up saying, my pink Cadillac is. The moment we did that, we saw this mass adoption of this weird concept. Ultimately, we're having a work-life balance conversation without even saying the words work-life balance, which is actually part of the success of this. But we put it onto the audience. And the moment that we did that, we, we, we had to create the buy-in with the story. Like we can't throw the stories away. So that was imperative in the beginning, but that's what made everyone listen. And then posing a question was actually what, you know, created change. And I, you know, I had to learn that out there on the stage. That wasn't something that was taught to me beforehand. Uh, now I got one other question before we get to the pink Cadillac stuff, because again, um, uh, again, you just have two crazy, crazy stories. And so there's going to be people who are watching, listening. I would fall into this bucket of, uh, I've always said like, I I'm a white male from the Midwest who's had a normal average life. Like there's nothing on paper that would be like, Oh, well, yeah, of course that guy should be a speaker. Look at that resume or look at that story or Holy crap. That's amazing. Like I, I got none of that stuff. And so I remember early on in my own speaking career, that felt like a limiting belief, that it felt like you had to have something. So what would you say to speakers who may be in my spot who are going like, I, I don't have anything like that. I've never had cancer. I've never even broken a bone. And so I don't feel like on the, on the surface that I have anything that could compete with something like that, that could get me in the door. Is what would you say to that speaker? I don't think it matters, to be honest. Now I'm lucky that we have a story, and it's it's a good crutch to lean on. But uh, if you haven't seen Ryan Estes's uh, pouring a uh, pouring happiness video on YouTube, jump on there and and watch this one story of of Ryan being at an airport and going to Starbucks, and it's purely this interaction between the girl pouring the coffee and and Ryan going home for Christmas. And I think it is just like a masterclass in storytelling. And it's not some crazy climbed a mountain story or had a bad day story. So, you know, we do have those and they do help for sure. Um, But taking, it's not about that. Watch that story with Ryan. There's lots of different examples out there in the industry of people who've taken something so small and created something so amazing. And I think that the, the pink Cadillac idea has this virality to it, which again, we'll talk about it, but it's being able to present an old truth. There's very few ways to do a few new ways to do old things, right? Uh, it's it's finding a way to take a cliche or something that's worn out and present it back to an audience in a fun, unique, potentially viral, unforgettable way. And that's what we've managed to do, which is really, really cool. So if you're out there and, and you don't have that wild story, don't worry about it. You know, there's so many examples of incredible speakers who are just making waves and they don't have the story. Yeah. Really so we've been dancing around the pink Cadillac. First of all, why don't you give us some context of, again, what it is, how it ties into the message. And then again, kind of what, what, how is adding that layer uh, really enhance the, the overall presentation beyond just the aviation stories? Yeah, for sure. So uh, for context, 2018, moved to America. You know, I'm this kid who started a speaking business. We're pushing closer to the pandemic. And I'm just excited to be in America, right? There's fun food here and fun things to do. And like this place is just like a theme park of a country. So I'm kind of living the American dream. At the same time, still trying to find my feet after the accident recovery and kind of just get into a groove. I jumped in my truck. So I moved to Tennessee and bought an American truck because that's what you meant to do. Come on now, let's go. (laughs) And I drove west to Memphis in Tennessee and visited as much as I could in one day in Memphis. Went to Elvis's house. That was a highlight. 
Graceland, like did the tour. The whole thing was super cool. I left the house. They placed us in a bus, took us down to the main building. And then I realized the only way to get back to my truck out there in the car lot was to actually go through the gift shop. Because in America, I now know they force you through the gift shop, right? Like that's how all American attractions work. So I went through the gift shop and I bought this. So what I'm holding is a a model pink Cadillac. It was $30. It's this ridiculous pink toy car. Elvis was obviously well-known for his pink Cadillacs. I took this Cadillac home. My housemate at the time was like, what is that? Why did you buy it? I was like, man, I have always wanted a pink Cadillac. So I tried to justify why a grown man had bought a pink toy car. Ultimately, nine months later, I bought the real thing to cut a long story short. And I spent a whole bunch of money that I did not have to spend. I bought it off a guy called Hot Rod Walt. He was a rockabilly singer in Jackson, Georgia. This thing overheated and broke down seven times on the way back to Nashville. Wow. But it brought us so much joy. So what happened was I was trying to build a speaking business. I was struggling with certain aspects of my life still. But when I went out and jumped in this pink Cadillac, all that went away. I was full of joy. I was smiling ear to ear like a kid. It was just an incredible uh, moment of relief. I was a keynote speaker on resilience and mental health. One interaction at a gas station with an old man who was smiling at that car, one thought, one connection made me realize, wait a second, this is extremely powerful. I'd been doing these things that brought me joy, but then I was not really thinking about why I did them or the benefits of doing them. I had lots of things that made me happy, flying and old cars and cooking barbecue and adventuring around America, but I hadn't thought about the benefits. And that old man, this one interaction with this one guy, wondering what he was going through in his life, what turbulence, what adversity, uh, made me think, wait a second, what if I merge these two worlds? What if every time I was struggling, I actually intentionally prioritized joy? What if I took this one thing that a lot of us consider selfish and I made it essential? And it was an understanding of the benefits, a deep dive into that, that led to the permission to do something we often see as as selfish. The permission led to prioritization, which led to positive change. So this one idea of like, hey, this stuff matters, led me down a path that not only did this become one of the greatest benefits in my life to my mental health, especially since the accident, it actually became a question, what's your pink Cadillac? What's the one thing you do that makes you smile like a kid? It was a question that I decided for some reason to ask at the end of a a keynote, the last five minutes. And the reaction to that five minutes, the fact that people were talking about that more than the the other 55 minutes is what led me Mm -hmm. to continue to ask the question. And then slowly it expanded and, and kind of took over the keynote. Now I wear a pink shirt to work in America. I talk about a pink Cadillac and we pose this question. We have pink Cadillac post-it note boards. We have even had a whole bunch of keynotes where we have a real pink Cadillac on site at the venue. So it's been this wild journey, not just of buying the car and and having it affect me and and my life, um, but seeing it go out there and affect others. So, But one of the things I think that's so powerful about it is that you touched on earlier is all speaking is, is is you're making an educated guess as far as like how the audience is going to respond or react. I think this is interesting. I think this is fascinating. I think this is funny. I think this is powerful, but you just don't know until you get up in front of the audience. Now, you know, over time you start to get a better feel of like, Oh, this I'm pretty confident this is going to work. But like you mentioned, like the first time you share the pink Cadillac story, it sounds like it's a story, but I didn't foresee that, you know, a few years down the road, like, 
this would be the entire keynote. And actually, in fact, all the aviation stories may become kind of a secondary, you know, mm-hmm. a, side, a side dish to this main entree of this uh, pink Cadillac. So the importance of just uh, of testing, trying, iterating, leaning into the things that you, you try on stage and seeing what evolves and what comes out of those. Yeah, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, you are a communicator. And I think this journey for me has been kind of just a, I mean, you got to get out there and be in the trenches and and do this stuff. You got to iterate on it. You got to learn. You got to see it in the flesh. You can listen to it on a podcast. You can read it in a book. You can go and do a course. And it is all great for sure. But there's no substitute for being out there and watching it happen in real time. So you got to take all of those tools and put it together. And and that's it, it takes time to get to you know that message that's really going to stick and, and last. And it's a surprise to me for sure. And the aviation stories, you know, will always be there as a credibility driver and you start to get these, I've realized that this is really a marketing game, right? We have to have clarity in all of our messaging and marketing. We were talking about it before we started to record in the real, in the website, all across the board. And we've started to kind of uh, finalize and and perfect some phrases to talk about the fact that regardless of a around the world adventure being one of Australia's 50 greatest explorers, regardless of being in a plane crash, a paraplegic diagnosis and learning to walk again, my greatest resilience building tool that I have ever discovered was parked in my driveway. And it's like that type of thing there is like, it's that stuff that matters. And when I look out at all the speakers that I really look up to, we talk about Clint Pulver a lot Mm -hmm. and we watch the experience and we, we look into their marketing and just what they've created. Like this is more than a keynote. Gone are the days where you get to stand up and just give a 60-minute story and, and walk off the stage. It's not enough. We have to create an experience. We have to create something so sticky that once you leave, like that, what's your pink Cadillac message? They can forget about Ryan. They can forget about the aviation stories, but they'll be asking each other, what's your pink Cadillac for years to come? They'll be talking about it at future conferences. They have that pink Cadillac model sitting on their desk. We have to I think that's the secret at this stage, I think is creating something that sticks like that. I want to shift gears for a second. You know, uh, you mentioned that you came to the US in 2018, really started to kind of ramp up the speaking thing, 2019, 2020, pandemic hits. Uh, and so if we fast forward today, like your speaking career of really going all in on this is, you know, three, four, five years old, which is still relatively new. And so I know just in some of our own conversations, just you and I, You've talked about just kind of the highs and lows of this business, right? There are days where you're like, man, I'm, you know, I can't believe I just booked this or I've done some like real big clients and some, uh, like I can say like you're, you're getting like really solid fees and you're booking some really solid gigs, but it's also there are days you're just like, dang, like, I can't believe I lost out on this gig to that person. I'm, I'm better than they are. Or like, I can't believe that, you know, they got paid this and I got paid that and just the mental, emotional highs and lows. So what, walk us through, uh, you know, the, the past couple of years of like, just building the speaking business and the highs and lows of that and how, you know, especially as a talk, uh, one of the things that you've talked about is resiliency. Like how have you found resiliency in building your own speaking business? Yeah. I mean, you know, like I've been through some stuff and, and building a speaking business, especially around the pandemic is one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I think people laugh about that a little bit, but you know, when you're in a spinal rehabilitation ward or when you're flying around the world or on an adventure, like you're kind of in control somewhat still. Like, you know, results uh, kind of directly proportional to your effort. You get up, you, you get going, you give it all you have. The speaking industry, I don't think is quite the same. It doesn't feel the same anyway. You've got to put the hard work in for sure. But sometimes you put all this hard work in and you just don't see 
anything in return. And then all of a sudden you get this flow. It's all ebbs and flows, right? So we have these moments of like, what is going on? Like, I'm going to have to go and get a job at Walmart. Not that that will be terrible. Walmart's an incredible place. Uh, but you have those moments where you're like, oh my gosh, this is this is never going to be successful. And then you have these other moments where in one week you travel and do more keynotes where there's one, uh, at the end of last year, there's one week where I earned more money in that week than I've uh, earned in Australia in a whole year. And yeah. I was kind of like, wait a second. So <laughs> I often think of it as uh, designing and selling a scooter. I always say this to my wife, Rachel, a Tennessee girl. I always say, it's all, it's, it's like if we designed a scooter and then we took this scooter out and we prototyped it in the market, right? Coming up with the keynote, coming up with the messaging, you have to take it out and prototype it. You have to let other people ride that scooter and tell you what they like and don't like. And you tweak the design and all that kind of stuff. Last year, we got to the point where we finalized the design on the scooter. We're like, this is it, the pink Cadillac message. We watched it evolve. Now let's take it to mass market. But unfortunately, mass market's not a switch and bureaus don't line up at your door and, and leads don't fall into your inbox. So there is a period of time. There's this element of time that's probably not talked about enough. And Eric Tamundi really helped me with that, an incredible Canadian speaker, kind of sitting down and talking about a growth curve and making me realize that you know we can't have this tomorrow. We can't have it all tomorrow. This takes time. So once you have that scooter locked in, you go out to mass market, you've then got to be patient. And we are seeing incredible growth, but it has taken a lot of resilience. I lean on probably two speakers in particular. So when the, the ebbs are ebbing, <laughs> I get on the phone and, and we chat and we talk about it. And more often than not, when I'm in an ebb, one of these other two guys are in a flow. So we can kind of bounce off each other. And I can tell you what happens vice versa as well. So really leaning on on, on that side of it, a couple of speakers, it's a lonely game, but also jumping on the podcast, you know, motivating yourself to, to realize that this is a really incredible opportunity that we all have as a keynote speaker. It can change our life and we can change the lives of other people. Just understanding that it's a long game. That is just mm -hmm. the biggest part of this is it's not going to happen tomorrow, so don't expect it to. And, you know, that's been the biggest part for me. It's been the, the foundation of resilience, getting up every day and just chipping away a little bit and knowing that it's a long game, not a short game. So you, you had mentioned like, like keeping that long-term perspective and for every speaker, every speaker on the planet, like we all wish it would happen faster than it actually does. And it is such a long game. And, and part of it, you know, you look up the, the speakers that you admire, you respect that are getting, you know, more gigs or higher profile gigs or higher fees than anybody else. It's like, they've probably just been doing it for a long while. And it's kind of that compound uh, compounding effect. So when you know you're doing the right things, but things are just not progressing as fast as you would like, you mentioned you've got some other speaker friends that you 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 chat with and compare notes with. Anything else that you do just to keep yourself moving forward and just remind yourself like, dude, you're I'm doing the right stuff. Even if I don't see it today, it doesn't mean things aren't happening or that momentum isn't building. Like, How do you continue to push forward? I go and drive my pink Cadillac. And I know that sounds so cheesy because it sounds like a sales pitch, but it is not, mate. Like, it's not. You and I sit in the hangar, we go for a fly that renews me. Going to the lake renews me. Driving the, the actual pink Cadillac renews me. Like, I have to understand that this is a long game. I look at my business as a chain. Your chain is only as strong as the weakest link. So we're always looking every day at what that weakest link is. Right now, it's our reel. We want to see the reel be improved. We just released a new website. So that uh, link was strengthened. So always looking at the weakest link, making sure we polish that every day. 
understanding the basics, rock up to every event, make sure we get every event on film, make sure we get testimonials, make sure like you're making the most of every opportunity you are given. The sales side of it drives me up the wall. That's not something that I love. I struggle with that, but we've had a lot of success with bureaus. We have incredible bureau partners. So putting in the effort to try and expand the number of bureaus that we work with and doing things like this, networking with you know, like-minded individuals and asking for advice and being humble and, you know, but at the end of the day, you just can't go 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's not how this game works. So give yourself a yeah. break, you know, go and do something fun and, and drive your pink Cadillac and you will show up better on Monday morning. And, and as long as we're making the most of every opportunity, this business will grow at the speed that it is, is meant to grow. You mentioned that one of the biggest benefits for you, um, or one of the things that's been most helpful for you in building and growing the business has been connecting with a couple other speakers. Mm. Anything that you have done over the past couple of years just to network with other speakers, because especially when you're early on, like you're looking up to speakers that are, you know, what feels like light years ahead of you and going like, I don't have anything to offer and they get hit up all the time. And can I pick your brain type crap? But like, what have you done to, to network and connect with other speakers that has, has helped you in your journey? I think you just got to be careful not to network uh, too far ahead. So I found myself for a while. I mean, I love watching his stories now, but Ben Nempton speaks on the bucket list. I found his Instagram stories to be harder for me. Like It's more of a drag and a setback than it was a benefit there for a while because I just couldn't believe the amount of work he was doing. I couldn't believe, but he's the number two motivational speaker in the world, according to one of the, the lists. So this guy's incredibly successful been in this far longer than I have. And, you know, you just got to be grounded. So so make sure that the people that you reach out to are just above you. So make sure we're setting goals that just basic goal setting, right? Set something that's, you know, attainable. Don't go and set something that's so far out that you're going to set yourself up for disappointment. So the couple of guys that I work with are around about my position and we seem to be following each other pretty well. But then I have a couple of guys who are a little bit further ahead. And then I have the big guys like Clint, Eric and, and Ben and and Josh Link and other people that we can go to and say, hey, like here are some real high level questions. That's really, it's very motivating and inspiring to watch what they're doing and know that we could one day be there. But when we talk about business development and the next step, the next reel, the next website, the next outreach to a bureau, the next connection, I, I make all those decisions based off some guys who are just ahead of me. And I think that is how we're going to grow sustainably and, and not get too down when the ebbs ebb. Yeah. Let's uh, wrap up with this. Again, you've you've really been at it all in for the past, you know, three, four years. Uh, and so you mentioned this has been, you know, the hardest thing that you've ever done. And that's saying a lot given, you know, some of what you shared earlier. So if you go back to 2018, 2019, Ryan, and you're just going to have a conversation with him, uh, what what do you tell him? Uh, and then ultimately, like, you know, you're, you're speaking to speakers everywhere who are in the early stages of the journey, just like, dang, this is hard, man. You know, is this worth it? Like, what am I doing this for? Like you said, maybe it's simpler to go get a job at Walmart. Uh, and so what, what would you say to, to, to Ryan of three, four, five years ago, or a speaker who's in the same spot now? I would, I would first off say that this job obviously offers the most incredible lifestyle in the whole wide world, you know, money and time. So that money and time continuum that is so hard to, to nail, you know, for every person on the planet, we either have one or we have the other, we really have both. And, and this industry is an opportunity to have both. And Rachel and I, since post-pandemic, have spent three months each year in Australia. You know, we do virtuals. We can come back for main stage full-fee keynotes. But 
we dedicate three months of our year to be where we want to be in Australia with our family or with my family. So the work-life balance is incredible in this game. So you got to keep that in mind. That's why part of the reason why we're doing what we're doing. But the one thing I wish I knew I understood in 2018, 2019, even 2020 was no one can create your brand. No one can come up with, you know, for you what you should speak about. No one can really like, you have to do it yourself. Stop trying to shop it out completely now you've got to go to to the likes of you you've got to jump into the school you've got to have the help but you can't push it all away and say you guys build something for me come back to me and then i'm going to go and demand 15 20 25 35k a keynote i in the beginning thought that that could happen i was like oh this will be easy right but that was based off a false idea of how easy the speaking was in australia post round the world flight and that was just the, the hum of the media i thought that's that was normal it's not you yeah. got to fall in love with your own brand. you got to really sit in the trenches, get a whiteboard, think about that basic problem that I solve, transformation that I create, and nail that. That is the ultimate foundation to your business. And it took me many years to fall into you know, where I was truly comfortable with that. And I mean, that's the basis for everything. So I would say to anyone, you know, don't brush over that. Don't underestimate how powerful that is because it's kind of everything. Yeah. Really good stuff. Ryan, thanks for the time, man. We appreciate it. Always good chatting with you. I can say from uh, having spent time uh, online and offline with you that you are a, a top-notch quality human being. And so we appreciate uh, your, your time today. If people want to find out more about you and uh, what you're up to, where can we go? Legend. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, they can jump on ryancampbell.co or Instagram, LinkedIn, Ryan Campbell speaking. Uh, if I can help, please reach out. If I can be that guy who's just above you, please reach out. I love it. Awesome. Thanks, man. We appreciate you. Cheers. Hi friend, are you ready to get serious about taking your speaking business to the next level? Maybe you are someone who is looking for ways to book more paid gigs, or maybe you're trying to figure out all the different things that go into building a successful speaking business. Or perhaps you are an experienced speaker who wants to scale your speaking business to multiple six figures. If that's you, I'd encourage you to visit thespeakerlab.com slash call. Again, thespeakerlab.com slash call and book a free, no obligation call with our team. And if you're not quite ready to take that leap, I don't want you to hesitate in checking out all the free resources that we have available to you on our website, including this podcast. So head over to thespeakerlab.com. Again, thespeakerlab.com. Find hundreds of blog posts, how-to guides, podcast episodes, email scripts, proposal templates, and so much more. Finally, I got a big favor. I would love for you to leave us a rating or review for this podcast. We read every single one, and it also helps other speakers find valuable free resources that they can use to build their own speaking careers. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.